Our scripture reading is from John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. This is Jesus speaking here. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you by this. My Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. And would you please join with me in prayer? Lord God, you have gathered us here this morning. You are the gardener, the vine dresser, you have pruned us, you are shaping us, you are drawing us more and more into your son who is the vine that gives us life. And so we pray, even as Jesus tells us to have his words abide in us, that you would use this time so that that would take place, that your word would more deeply shape us and that we would be those who bear fruit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, I'm going to do something a little bit different. Uh, If you were here last week, you'll know that we finished off our summer series on the Psalms. And in two weeks' time, we're going to start a new series beginning the book of Exodus. And if you've been with us for a while, you know that our tradition is generally to kind of work through an entire passage. And we will be looking at a passage more closely in a little while. But I want to start by focusing on a person by the name of William Carey. Maybe you've heard the name. He is oftentimes referred to as the father of modern missions. But I want to start kind of before he ever becomes that, back when he is a kid. He grows up in this small town in England, drops out of school at age 14 to become an apprentice to a shoemaker, and that's what he does for the next decade. Kerry, by his own admission, was uh, not the most dynamic or maybe even interesting of people. The way he describes himself was he was a plotter. As in, he would figure out that he wanted to do something and he would just keep plodding along until he got there. And so while he was this cobbler's apprentice, he plotted with languages. He loved languages. And while he was kind of working on shoes, he would also have a Latin grammar book. So he learned Latin. And then he learned Greek. Then he learned Hebrew. Then he learned French and Italian and Dutch. Clearly, he loved languages, which also might be part of the reason why he wasn't the most interesting of people to other people. But he plotted. And during this time as an apprentice, something else happens to him. He came into contact with another apprentice who had this vibrant love of Christ, and it just changed him. He came to see Jesus in a new way. He had grown up in a nominal Christian home but never really had a faith himself, but now suddenly it all became alive for him. And so he became more involved 
in his church, in, in serving, in ministry. Eventually, he became ordained to preach. And as he became more involved, he found himself really troubled because he realized there were entire nations throughout the world, literally billions of people who had never heard about Jesus. And yet, as he looked around, he did not see the church caring about that. So at one point, he uh, was at a minister's meeting, and he stood up to talk about his concern. And an older, um, maybe more calloused pastor responded, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. In other words, we don't have much control over this. Let's just be faithful ministers and let God take care of that. But Kerry was not shot down by that. He's a plotter. And so for five more years, he kept working at things. He became more of an established minister. In his early 30s, he had not lost this concern about nations who had never heard the gospel. And so he wrote a short book and published it, contending that the gospel says we have to go. You know, the Great Commission, we are called to go out into the world bearing witness to Christ. Over this time, he had gathered a group of like-minded friends, and they began this new missions agency designed to help raise funds to send people out. And just a year later, he was one of those who was sent out. He ended up going with his family to India, where he would spend the next 41 years never to return back to England. And it seems by all accounts that he was a bit naive, underprepared for just how challenging his time in India was going to be. I mean, it was brutal. His, one of his sons died of dysentery, and his wife, who does not seem to really have been prepared for this anyway, ended up having a nervous breakdown, and she never recovered mentally from this time. He did not see a single convert for years as he was working in this country, and at one time he wrote, I am in a strange land, no Christian friend, a large family, and nothing to supply their wants. And by all accounts, part of the problem that he was in was his own fault. As he was so focused on doing the work that he did, he was not focusing as much on caring for his family. He was flawed, as we all are. And yet, God still worked through his plotting. Seven years into his time in India, seven years, he saw his first convert, a friend of his, an Indian man who came to know who Christ is. And that began kind of a, a, a gradual progress. Soon thereafter, he published the New Testament in Bengali. And later on, he published the entire Bible in that language. And then in Hindi, and then in Sanskrit, suddenly allowing millions of people for the first time to be able to read God's word. News of his progress came back, and so he was able to get more funds. And he started a, a teaching organization, a seminary, and even today that organization continues, and 2,000 people every year are being taught. He had such an impact on India that he was honored by being put on a stamp just a few years ago because of the cultural shaping that he did. But his impact was even more on just than India because his example shaped a whole generation of missionaries, people who saw what he did and said, I want to do that, and so they went to India and to China, and to countries throughout Africa and the rest of the world. And it's no exaggeration to say that hundreds of millions of people's lives have been touched through what William Carey did. Just think of that. Hundreds of millions of lives. 
Now, shortly before going to India, he preached a sermon that would become famous, uh, one that ends up kind of defining his legacy. And we don't actually have the, the actual sermon remaining, but we have a lot of people's eyewitness testimony where they remembered the main point because it was so powerful to them. And the main point was really simple. It said, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Now, I want to return to that idea a little bit, but I want to now speak of another story, one far less exotic or impressive, and you'll see why it's really not meant to be a comparison to William Carey's, because it's a little bit of my own story. I remember, um, I think, when I was a child of about eight, it was a warm, sunny Saturday, and my mom, who had four boys and therefore was constantly sending us outdoors, sent me outdoors with a pair of used roller skates that I think she picked up at a yard sale, basically telling me to figure out what to do with them so I could expend some energy. So there was a cul-de-sac right near where our house was, and so I was just, I don't know, skating along this bumpy pavement, and I noticed that I had this new neighbor that I had never met. And so I skated up to him. He was working on a car at a time. And I introduced myself, and we talked for a little while. And, you know, eight-year-olds were none of things to talk about fairly quickly, and so I did. And for some reason, I felt my desire to impress this person. And so I told him, my mom says I'm going to be famous one day. Now, it might shock you to know that this was a lie. My mom had never said, you're going to be famous one day. But I really had wanted her to say that. Because I wanted to be a big deal. Like, and I think part of it was I was socially awkward as a kid, and I struggled in school in that regard. And the way that I dealt with being picked on was thinking, someday I'm going to prove them all wrong. Someday I'm going to do great things. And that really, I think, drove me. So for school, as I was thinking about what I wanted to do, I was like, what is an important thing to do? And for a while, I thought, a lawyer. That's what I want to be. That's a great thing. Sometime around, I don't know, high school, it kind of shifted my thinking. And then I decided I wanted to be a pastor, but not just any pastor, a great pastor. One who might start a revival or, I don't know, write a book or something awesome. But then college came along, and God's grace turned me around and upside down like God's grace sometimes can do. And I, I started recognizing that I wasn't seeing myself clearly and that there was an unhealthy arrogance pride that was driving this. I realized also the way that I was seeing others where I wasn't paying as much attention to them because I just wanted to be important. And I realized I wasn't seeing God rightly. And so I came to realize this was kind of an unhealthy way of seeing things. And around that time, I came across this book that said something that was really important for me to hear. And that was that God does not call us to be successful. That's not what obedience looks like. God calls us to be faithful faithful in prayer, faithful in obedience, faithful in trusting him. And then in seminary, that kind of became reinforced because one of the things that they said again and again is you're going to be tempted at times when you're a part of a small church to look at a big church and feel like you've just failed, but you don't need to worry about numbers. Just preach the gospel and see what God will do. And I want to say that was really what I needed to hear at the time. It moved me away from the desire to be important in my own right and helped me to realize that my calling was to be faithful to God and to trust in him. 
And that really has kind of almost come to define me, that question, am I being faithful? Now, I bring all that up because I think that's shaped us as a congregation, partly through my influence, partly through who we are. I think that's often as what drives us, the question, are we as a congregation being faithful? Are we being faithful in trusting the gospel? Are we being faithful in speaking the gospel? Are we faithful? And I would say that's a really important question to ask. But I've come to realize over time that that question on its own is an inadequate question. It misses out on something important, something that I think Kerry was getting at when he said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. See, faithfulness is, is a very important focus when we're thinking about our responsibility, about what it looks like to honor God. But it's not a good aspiration. It's not a good goal that drives us. It's a little bit like when our family, we went on a road trip just a few weeks ago, and sometimes Timothy was driving to get his permit hours in. And imagine if Timothy had asked me the question, where are we going? And I said, don't worry about destination, just drive well. I mean, that's not terribly helpful. Yes, I absolutely want him to drive well, but he needs to know where he's going. And I want to suggest that focusing only on being faithful is a little bit like that. Yes, we're called to be faithful, but faithful in what? What is God calling us to pursue? What is God stretching us towards? So what I want to tell you is over the last couple of years, I've come to, to realize that it's not enough only to consider our calling to be faithful, although that is crucial. We are also called to aspire to be fruitful. Not just to pursue faithfulness, but to pursue fruitfulness. It's not my observation. It's something that I came across reading Tim Keller, who I find very helpful. He's the one who made this argument, and more and more I found it to be both true and deeply biblical. Our calling is to pursue fruitfulness. And so now we come to our passage because perhaps you notice when Jesus is speaking in these verses, and we could continue actually much longer in this passage, he is talking about fruitfulness. I am the vine, the Father is the gardener, you are the branches, let me tell you about what it means to be fruitful. And so as we look at this passage, I think probably the question that it immediately raises for us is what does that even mean? What is fruitfulness? It's actually not just spoken of here, but Paul regularly talks about fruit as well. What is this biblical language of fruitfulness? I think verses 7 and 8 are the place that we can kind of like start honing in on the answer to that question. Verse 7 can sometimes be troubling to Christians because here's what it says. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And I say it's troubling because people go, wait a second, sometimes I ask for things and, and God doesn't give them to me. But it's important to use verse 8 to understand what Jesus has in mind with verse 7. Do you realize, do you notice how when Jesus is speaking this, he assumes that the answer to prayer is going to be fruitfulness. So he said, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. Do you see that connection? He's assuming you're going to ask, God will answer, and fruit will be born, and God is glorified. 
And the reason for this is that very beginning part. If, if you abide in me and my words in you. In other words, if you are trusting in me and, and my words, what I have said, start shaping you. What do you think happens when we are trusting in Christ and his words start shaping us? Our desires change. And we begin to desire the very things that Jesus desires. And what does Jesus desire? That the Father be glorified. And so that's what this verse is saying. It's saying, as I abide in you, as I shape you, you're going to find yourself longing to see the glory of God. Pray about that. And God will answer, and you will bear fruit, and he will be glorified. Do you see that, how that connects? And so when we understand what he's saying here, it also tells us what the fruit is that Jesus has in mind. Fruit here is whatever God enables us to accomplish to bring him glory. That's what fruit is. It is whatever God enables us to accomplish to bring him glory. And in case we missed that connection, he says something very similar in verse 16. I know it's not in front of you, so I'll read it to you, but it's a very similar way of saying things. He says, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Do you hear that connection? Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. What is it that he's going to give? This fruit that you are going to go and bear and it's going to abide. And the idea of going, you can tell it's the idea of being sent out into the world. And the fruit here in this particular context is, is people hearing about Christ and being changed and hopefully in an abiding way that they, they remain faithful. But the larger idea is that this fruit is whatever God enables us as believers to accomplish, which brings him glory. So maybe sometime in the last couple of years, you've come to recognize that you have a problem with anger. You have been convinced as you've experienced the patience of God, the faithfulness of Jesus to you, where you are deserving his anger, that you should reflect that to others, that your anger is hurting others. And so seeing that, you pray asking that God would help you to be patient and peaceful and kind. And as God starts answering that, people start noticing what God is doing in you. That's fruit. That is what God is enabling you to accomplish for his glory. Or maybe last fall when we were talking about how, how work is an aspect of our faith, you started thinking about your own work environment, and you felt this desire, this calling shaped by God to try to, to, to improve the culture that was toxic in your work environment. And so, so now as you're praying about it, and as you're praying, you're seeking... To, to reach out to those people that no one else likes and, and to kind of put an arm around them and to make them feel welcome. When someone blows it with you, you're patient and you seek to be encouraging. And as you're doing things, things start changing. That is fruit. That is what God is enabling you to accomplish for his glory. Or maybe you have neighbors who are good friends and, and you long for them to know Christ. And so you've been praying for them faithfully and at some point, maybe as you're having dinner together, somehow you get into this conversation where you start being able to openly speak about who Jesus is for you and how important he is for you. And, and they listen, and they're even willing to come with you to church to hear more. That's 
fruit. That is what God is enabling you to accomplish for his glory. Fruit is what William Carey was speaking about when he spoke about expecting great things from God, attempting great things for God. That's great thing is his, his way of speaking of fruit. So that's what this passage is about. When it's talking about fruitfulness, it's talking about these things that God enables us to do for his glory. And I want you to notice quickly the three things that Jesus says about this fruit in these verses. First, notice that Jesus says that God wants that fruit, and he's going to do what it needs to happen for us to bear that fruit. He says, God is the gardener, the vine dresser. And what does a gardener do? Gardener's job is to try to enable his garden to bear lots of fruit. And that's the job that God has given himself. Jesus says, God is pruning us. You know, there's, there's some branches that have sickly fruit or branch, you know, like some stems from our branch that are starting to die, and he, and he cuts those away so that those that are truly bearing fruit get more healthy fruit. In terms of how this is experienced in life, we go through times where we might make mistakes or we experience suffering, and God somehow is shaping us in those times to give us humility, dependence upon him, a deeper trust in him. He is pruning us. And the goal of this pruning is so that we might bear more fruit. Second thing to notice, fathers of the gardener, Jesus says, I am the vine. And his point is that the only way that you are going to bear fruit is through me. You know, we know a branch that's not connected to the vine is never going to bear fruit. And that's what Jesus says. Apart from me, if you are not connected to me, you can do nothing. Anything that we set out to do, we're relying upon ourselves, is going to be fruitless. It might have the appearance of success, but if the spirit is not in it, it is not the success that we're longing for. I think this is part of what God was teaching me in college, this desire to be important in my own right. That's not Christian. This is where faithfulness is important, that we need faithfully to place our trust in Christ and depend upon him. But do you notice what happens when we do if we're doing it rightly? If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. So God is the gardener who is seeking fruit and he's pruning us. Jesus is the vine and he's saying, if you are in me, you will bear much fruit. And so that leads to the third point. God is the gardener. Jesus is the vine. We're the branches and our calling is to be those who bear fruit. I mean, that's like the most obvious implication of what we said. Our calling is to bear fruit. This is not the only place we see this. Paul, in this great passage in Ephesians that we all know, by grace you have been saved, you know how it finishes? We were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And that's what it's saying here. Our role as we are dependent on Christ in him, as we are being pruned by the Father, is to bear fruit. This is something we should aspire to. Well, this is something we should long for. I mean, that's the implication of verse 7, isn't it? When he's saying, as I dwell in you and you're going to pray and you're going to ask for fruit, the implication is, is the more that Jesus is a part of who we are, the more we're going to hunger and thirst to see fruit, to see ways that we can accomplish things that will bring God glory. 
It's the implications of verse 16 where Jesus says, go and bear fruit. Go is not a passive idea. It is being proactive. It is striving. It is pursuing something. And that's what we're called to do. You know, I think sometimes we make the mistake when we hear Jesus saying, abide in me, of hearing this as a very kind of passive, waiting kind of maneuver, where we just be faithful, we pray, we read God's word, and we just let God do what he's going to do. But if we're honest, what's happening there is us basically saying the same thing that that older pastor said to Carrie. Sit down, young man. God will take care of converting the heathen when he wants to. We don't have to worry about it. That's not what Jesus has in mind here. What does abiding in Christ look like? Well, when we look at the rest of the New Testament, we see. We see the early Christians as they're facing persecution in Acts, praying, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you perform signs through the name of your holy servant Jesus. They are wanting fruit, and they're praying for it. Abiding in Christ looks like Paul saying, it is my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ is not known. Do you hear that? It is not ungodly to be ambitious. It is actually our calling to be ambitious, to see fruit. Abiding in Christ looks like William Carey saying, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And then spending the next four decades giving everything for God's glory. He was seeking fruit. Now again, fruit is not only these dramatic moments of people coming to Christ or communities being saved. You know, fruit can be something as simple as you being changed in the way that you drive in traffic or the way that you do dishes to the glory of God. But it is something that we should be pursuing. What can we do? What can we change? How can we grow so that God is being glorified? We should pursue that fruitfulness, pursue it even as that pursuit takes us out of our comfort zones. And there's the catch, our comfort zones. Now, I think as I've looked back on why focusing only on faithfulness has been so appealing to me, part of it has been that was a necessary corrective. But part of it is that if we just focus on faithfulness without thinking about what that means, we are allowed in our own thinking to play it safe. We can just go through our normal days, trying to pray faithfully, being at church faithfully, working hard, and just seeking to live our normal American suburban lives. We can stay in our comfort zones, never having to take any risk of doing something difficult or exhausting or awkward for the glory of God. You know what? I've come to decide, and I think this is a biblical observation, that the most dangerous thing that you and I can possibly do is to play it safe. When we hold on to our comfort, instead of pursuing the glory of God, instead of seeking to bless others even as it costly, we are holding tight to a security that ultimately is a tame and small and finally meaningless 
life. Because we're branches. We were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Our calling is to be fruitful. And you and I should long for fruitfulness. So this morning, I'm wanting to encourage us as a church. We must not allow ourselves to settle into the complacency that can come if faithfulness is our only bullseye. We need to allow God to call us out of our comfort zones and into the vulnerability and, and somewhat terror and yet joy that the Spirit allows us to come into as he calls us to follow Christ in the bearing of fruit. So here's what I want to ask you. What fruit is God, our gardener, calling you to bear as you're abiding in Christ? What is God calling you and enabling you to accomplish for his glory? Could it be that right now you know that God has put on your heart a desire? And you know that that desire is for something that honors God. And it seems like the Spirit kind of keeps on bringing it to mind. And yet, if you're honest, you keep on trying to push it back because it frightens you. It's unsettling because it's risky. Can I encourage you to not keep putting that to the back of your mind, but to start praying about it, praying, asking that God would enable you to be fruitful and then step out. Or maybe it's something even more directly personal where it's not some calling to change something outside of you, but but you're aware of a need to change something within about who you are, that God has been teaching you, and you know that it would be glorifying to him for you to be different in some way. Maybe for some of you it's as simple as entrusting your life to Jesus. You know, there is no fruit that is more beautiful to God than our repentance. I want to encourage you to pray for that fruit and to step forward in faith. But I also want to say that it's not enough for us only to speak about bearing fruit individually. We are called to do this together. Christianity is is a team sport, and we as a church have a calling, a calling as a congregation, as Trinity, to bear fruit together. And and that's later on when we meet together. I hope that you all can be there because that's what we're going to be talking about. What is God calling us to? What does it look like for Trinity to pursue fruitfulness in the coming years? But for now, as we close, I want to invite you And I want to invite you and me to spend just a moment in prayer. To respond to God's word quietly, whether it's in confession or if it's something that you already know where God is calling you, prayer that God would enable us to be fruitful because we long to see his glory. That is what we were made for. You have a God who loves you. You have a Savior who is promised that if you abide in him, you will bear much fruit. So trusting in that, let's spend some time in prayer, and then I'll close this in prayer in a couple of minutes.
Father, we remember again in your presence that you are the gardener. That you are the one who sovereignly loves us and is shaping our lives. And though it scares us, we ask that you would continue to prune us so that we might bear much fruit. Lord Jesus, we remember before you that you are the vine. And so we ask that you would help us more fully to abide in you, that we might bear much fruit. Spirit, we know that we cannot do anything apart from you, that you are the life that we gain through Jesus. Please fill us with your power that we might bear your fruit. Father, Son, and Spirit, we confess in your presence that we on our own are weak, that we are often fearful resisting the freedom that you call us to, that we are prideful. Lord, thank you that you are a God who forgives and that you loves, love us. And we pray, Lord, please, in this forgiveness, in this love, lead us into the life of fruitfulness that you call us to. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, hear together the good news of the gospel from Colossians. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and has brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Thanks be to God.